Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show on YouTube. Today's episode, episode number 44, When Cops Go Bad, LinkedIn, and Do You Care About Privacy Yet? When we come back. So, when cops go bad. Now, before I get into this, because this, honestly, this is the meat of the show. I had um, those who, who know my show, who know my story, I've talked about it a lot. I've not really talked about a lot of the uh, of me breaking the law with Shadow Crew. I've not talked about me working with the Secret Service and setting people up and screwing them over and going on the run. People know what happened, but I've not really detailed or fleshed that story out all the way. We're going to do a little bit of that today because I had this individual reach out to me while I was in Hawaii. Remember, I call him a kid. He was an adult. But when I was working for the Secret Service, he was one of our targets out of the Columbia, South Carolina field office. And I set him up, got him arrested. He served prison time. So he reached out to me while I was in Hawaii. And it was very, it's been, it's, it's, <laughs> actually very fortunate that he did because you know we're working on this documentary actually we're getting everything together for this documentary for our, for this film production company and uh, about the brett johnson story going to be a docu-series is what they're what they're aiming at right now and so we're looking for all these documents all these deliverables that they can show during the series and a lot of it is about you know the case files and everything that happens so when i pled guilty on, on my federal case Part of my guilty plea said that I can, for the rest of my life, I can never file a freedom of information request. All those FOIA requests, I am denied those on everything the rest of my life. Now, the reason why, I am not a dumbass. I am not. You know, I, I come, <laughs> my show here on YouTube, I do my little voices. I don't try to kill off the Southern accent. You know, I just come in here and I have some fun. And I come off, you know, as, as, as I sometimes I think I, I like to think that I come off as personable, friendly, everything like that. But I am no dumbass. I am no slouch either. And giving me access to those types of documents, I might be able to find out some stuff to raise some hell about. And so I was uh, denied part of my plea agreement was, hey, you're never going to access or request freedom of information documents as long as you live and i was like okay i can do that just as long as you don't give me 20 years in prison <laughs> well that was the trade-off well this kid gets up with me and he's got a lot of uh, foia documents that he's going to uh, turn over so that we can use it in the documentary as long as i keep his name out of out of it and talk to the production company today and they were like hey that's fine we don't have to mention him at all and i'm like okay that'll work so um kids turned his life around he's a, he's an outstanding citizen these days and he's got a good life and so he doesn't want that brought up and i understand that if you've turned your life around hey do that i'm as far as i know i'm the only guy out there that's really embraced my criminal past i was like shit i'm not going to try to run from it let's admit it let's admit it and try to help people instead of hurt people and it's working out pretty well for me but that's not the future for everyone. This kid is, is doing all right. He's turned his life around. He's a good guy. The reason I mentioned that on this show, and this is what brings up the, the 
idea for this show when cops go bad. There was a lot of stuff that happened during that case against this kid that is a little circumspect. It's, it's a little, it's a little nefarious. It's a little underhanded. So it got me thinking. Hey, you know, over the past few years in the United States, we've heard about law enforcement having systemic problems, and it's often been just discussed with racism. Law enforcement has a systemic racism problem. I would say, make no mistake, I would say, hey, it's probably true. Certainly looks that way. If you ask any unarmed black man, he will tell you, yeah, they got a friggin' problem. I think it goes beyond just racism. I truly do. And yes, I think it targets minorities, people of color, people who are not uh, not economically advanced enough to afford proper representation in court. And it bothers me greatly that I have to talk about this because I got to tell you something. Now that I am on the legal side of the fence, I have a profound respect for law enforcement. I truly do. I truly do. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed enough that I have members of local, state, and federal law enforcement agency, agencies that I call friends, that I break bread with, that I eat with. And I know that these individuals are good people, that they're in the job because they want to do good. I know that without a doubt. And I also know that the vast majority of law enforcement agents out there simply want to make the world a better place. But I also think that the institutions are set up in a way that they harm people. Not always, but they do in certain areas. And it, it certainly targets poor people, minorities, people of color, marginalized people. It, it targets these individuals and the idea of justice being fair, I think, is a completely false idea. We see how that, that, that systemic problem of law enforcement, we see it manifest with police brutality. We certainly see that. But there are so many other ways that it manifests itself. We've got this Did you hear about the armored vehicles they are doing the civil asset forfeiture to now? Twice in California and Oklahoma saying the money the armored cars were carrying was drug money because some of it was coming from marijuana dispensaries. Think about that for a second. Now, in the United States, many states, marijuana is legal. Operating a dispensary is legal, but law enforcement is stopping the armored cars that's carrying the funds from those dispensaries and claiming that the money inside of the car is illegal because it's coming from a legal marijuana dispensary. That is this thing called civil asset forfeiture. I'll give you another story here. This is this this is the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia has been practicing this really unfair practice for years and profiting from it. And here's an example of how that's going on. Nasser Nasir Geiger spoke with the wrong this is from Forbes by the way and I'll have all these articles posted in the comments section. Nasir Geiger spoke with the wrong person at the wrong time, and it cost him hundreds of dollars and his car. Nasir was a victim of Philadelphia's predatory. 
civil forfeiture scheme that operated from a shady courtroom in at Civil Hall. For years, police and prosecutors seized cash, cars, and even homes, and then took the property for themselves. Worse still, new data shows that the police preyed on people in minority and low-income areas. In other words, people who could least afford to fight back. Nasir's troubles began when he stopped to say hello to a friend at a McDonald's in a northeast Philadelphia area. What Nasir didn't know was that the friend had been arrested for drug possession, just arrested. A few minutes after ending the conversation and driving away, Nasir was pulled over. His car was searched, and although no drugs or even drug residue was found, the officers seized the car and $580 in cash because they found empty Ziploc bags. Now, here's the thing. Empty Ziploc bags. Is that an indicator of drugs? It can be, or <coughs> it can simply be that Nasir had a child he got some Ziploc bags for so the kid could pack their lunch to school. You don't know, all right? You don't know. But based on just those empty Ziploc bags, no drugs, no drug residue in the car whatsoever, they seized the cash that Nasir had and they seized the Ziploc bags. Now, Nasir is an immigrant. He does not know English very well. He certainly did not have the money to hire a proper attorney. So they gave Nasir a public pretender who represented Nasir. And the way that this attorney represented Nasir is the attorney said, hey, what you need to do, you need to just go ahead, plead guilty. It's going to be a $200 fine. You walk your ass right back out of court. No worries whatsoever. So Nasir didn't really understand what was going on. He pleads guilty. Pays the $200 fine. He thinks he's going to get his car and the $580 cash back. Now, tell you what you need to do. This is evidently the judge that tells Nasir Geiger this. Tell you what you need to do. Uh, come back here. We'll set a court date for six months. Come back and we'll talk about it. He comes to court six months later. What happens? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, your car. Yeah, we'll give your car back to you, but... Uh, for you to get your car back, we need you to pay the uh, the impounding fee along with the storage fee for the car for the past six months. That's going to run you oh, a little bit over $1,800 for you to get your car back. Civil asset forfeiture. This is how law enforcement makes a lot of money because they then get to use all those things for whatever purposes they need to use them for. Nasir, for example. How does the county make money? Well, they make money by holding that car and making him pay that storage fee of $1,800 if he wants his car back. If he doesn't want his car back, guess what? Well, we'll go ahead and we're going to keep your cash at $580, so that's profit for us, and we're going to sell the car at auction later on, so we're going to profit by that as well. This is how a lot of counties and cities make money, how, how a lot of offices make money. When I was working for the United States Secret Service, they used to have these lanyards around their neck that said the lanyard read, think seizure first. So the agent was supposed to go into whatever home they were searching or whatever residence they were arresting someone at. They were supposed to go in and immediately start looking at items that could be seized. Think seizure first.
This is civil asset forfeiture. And it's 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 a thing where the person is not on trial. See, if Nasir had taken it to trial, they would have never been able to seize these items because there was really no evidence at all that they were connected to criminal activity. But because he pleads out, there what was actually on trial was not Nasir. It were it was the items that were seized. And it's Nasir's, it's up to him to prove that they were legally acquired. And talking about when cops go bad, and again, I have a a profound respect for law enforcement. I truly do. I think they do an outstanding job. I think that they are wonderful, amazing human beings. I think that they are there to protect us and make our lives better overall. And I also think that they don't get near near the respect they deserve, the things that they deserve or anything else. And I got to tell you, a lot, of, a lot of this epiphany came when I started to obey the law. Once I started to obey the law, I realized, hey, you start, you start obeying the law, law enforcement officers, they stop being assholes. That's a joke, but hey, they, there's some truth to that. And the truth is, is that, you know, they don't, they're not, most law enforcement officers are not there to just get you. There are some, I'm not going to say there's not, there are some, and there are, there are certainly instances over the years where it seems like law enforcement has really screwed up. Um, this kid that I had busted, this is one of these instances. We're at. I was at the county jail in Columbia, South Carolina. He was at the same jail. Before I get sent off to federal prison, where I then escape, before that happens, as I'm heading out the door, I send this kid a letter detailing every single thing that had gone wrong in the investigation that he might want to know about were he to take this to trial, which he thanked me profusely at that point in time. So he contacts me and he's telling me, you know, his, his story, what happened. So uh, this kid sends me a note. He had evidently just watched the Netflix documentary and he sends me a note. Um, the subject is uh, Netflix. And he says, I don't know why you were ever involved in the forums. You should have done stand-up comedy. Glad to see you're out of trouble and on the right side these days. To which I responded, I said, hey, your name. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. And excellent to hear from you. They did a good job with the Netflix thing. Now working with Ridley Scott's film company to do a docu-series. I'm very blessed. Uh, I hope all is well with you. These days, stay safe. He responds, I hope you keep my name out of it as much as possible. I was glad to see I wasn't mentioned, although over the years, various outlets have attempted to email my old email. Now, I have to ask, is it true so there were two Secret Service agents in in charge of my case. One was Bobby Kirby. The other was Brad Smith. So this, this kid asked me, he's like, now I have to ask, is it true Kirby and Smith busted you because you shipped a cell phone to your mom and they intercepted the package, then triangulated or more likely used the stingray to find you? I heard the first words out of your mouth was, Kirby, how did you find me? And his reply, Brett Johnson, you son of a bitch. If that's true, it's going to be one hell of a documentary, and I can't wait to see it. 
My response, mostly true. Yes. Stingray. Yes. Dialogue. I'll reenact that on my next show this coming Tuesday. It's actually much crazier than that. I'll keep your name out of things. You have my word. So we're going to pause the email chain here for a second so we can reenact what happened. It was September 16th, 2006. I was in, I had already made the United States most wanted list. When I made the U.S. Most Wanted list, I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, sat there stunned, said out loud, well, Brett, you've made the U.S. Most Wanted list. What do you do now? Said out loud, I'm going to Disney World. So I loaded up everything in a Jeep Cherokee that I had purchased with illegal money, drove from Las Vegas, Nevada to Orlando, Florida, got to Orlando. I paid cash for nine months in a timeshare. The timeshare was not furnished at that point. So I went to a furniture store, bought $30,000 in furniture, bought another $30,000 in electronics. I had a, uh, a DVD collection that had been seized once before that was valued at like $25,000. I repurchased every single one of those DVDs. And the, the idea was, is, hey, I'll, I'll camp out in Orlando. I'll go to Disney World every day. I'll go to Universal Studios every day, and I'll just have a fun time, camp out here for about a year, then bug out to Brazil, where I will set up shop again and continue to break the law. So I was there for, I don't know, a few weeks. September 16th was a Saturday, and um, the night before, I had a burner phone that I had I had sent a phone to my mom so that she could call me when she needed to, and I'd sent her like $3,000 in cash. So I didn't know that the Secret Service, I sent that by FedEx. I knew that they were intercepting U.S. postal mail, but I figured a FedEx package would get through. It did not. Secret Service had intercepted the package, got the cell phone, had reversed on the uh, the numbers, and they were using a Stingray device. So a Stingray device is a cell phone, is a box, a cell phone spoofing package that will locate your physical location within seven feet. And it also tells the other numbers that are in the areas can do all kinds of nifty stuff like that. All right. So the night before on September 15th, around eight, 9 PM, I got a call from a Las Vegas number and the call. Once I picked it up, they said they were with Papa John's. Did I order a pizza? Well, come to find out that was not Papa John's. That was the United States Secret Service. That was, hey, let's see if this some bitch will answer if we called the number. Well, I answered. They said wrong phone number. I hung up, thought it kind of odd, but went to sleep. The next morning, 1030 a.m., knock at the door. Now, this complex, this timeshare complex was still being constructed at that point in time. I was used to the the construction people and people walking by and knocking on the door to make sure they weren't disturbing me, to make sure that the building was still going all right, that everything was working properly, everything else. So I didn't think anything about the knock. So what happens is I hear the knock at the door. I get up, go to the peephole, look outside. Nobody's there. And I'm like, okay. So then I open the door step out into the hall and walking down the hall is Bobby Kirby, another South Carolina secret service agent and an orange County deputy. They turn around. I'm like, hi, Bobby. And they're like, hi, Brett. And I'm like, look, would you like to come in? Actually, actually back, back that up that he did say that I step out of the hall. They turn around. I'm like, hi, Bobby. He's like, Brett Johnson, you son of a bitch. And I'm like, hi, guys, would you like to come in? And Bobby looks at me. He's like, well, let's put you in cuffs first. And I'm like, probably a pretty good idea. 
So I walk in, and they put me in cuffs, walk back into the, into the apartment. They sit me down on the couch. Bobby gets his cell phone out, dials Brad Smith, puts the phone to my ear. Brad Smith says, let the fucking begin. And he screams into my ear. And that's the only thing that Brad Smith says. Bobby looks at me at that point, And he was like, uh, so you got anything in the apartment? And I'm like, yeah, I got $150,000 cash in the bedroom. And so he starts to walk toward the bedroom. And I'm like, and an AK-47. And he stops dead in his tracks. And he looks at me. He's like, are you serious? I was like, no, just kidding you. So he's like, Johnson, you're still a son of a bitch. So he walks in, they pull the money out. It's in a backpack because in a backpack, if I've not mentioned this before, in one of those Jan sport backpacks, you see slung over the shoulders of college kids everywhere. One of those will hold $150,000 cash if stacked properly. So this had 150 K in it. Bobby brings it out and he's like, do you have a money counter? And I was like, no. And he's like, you need to tell me you steal all this money and you don't have a money counter. And I was like, no. I like counting the money by hand. So that was the arrest. From there, they take me to Orange County Jail. I'm in isolation for a week until I get put over into uh, federal holding, and it goes from there. So that's the story. I told this kid I would tell what actually happened. That's That was the arrest sequence at that point in time. So following right along, he remember he said, uh, he said, uh, um, I said, mostly true. Yes. Stingray. Yes. Dialogue. I'll reenact on the next show and I'll keep your name out of things. You have my word on that. So his response is, that's what they told me when I asked. They at first were hesitant and Smith looked at Kirby and said, should we tell him? And Kirby just shrugged and Smith turned around. I was chained in the back of the car. Smith turns around with a smile on his face and is, okay, so check this and then went into it. They put Will Horan. Will Horan was a uh, a cocaine dealer that I was friends with on the outside before I got arrested. They put Will Horan in the same cell with me in order to get information from me. My response was, you know, I liked Will. No idea whatever became of him. The story that they told you is very, very close. The only real change is some of my dialogue, but the story they told is very accurate. I sent him another email after that. I'll have episode 43 out Tuesday and we'll recount it from my end. You'll see both accounts are very similar. Uh, this kid responds. He's like, I liked Will too, but that was the idea. They moved him into my cell to build a rapport with me because he knew you. But the craziest story at Lexington County Jail was when they came to question me about your escape. I was waiting to go to prison and they yelled my name for booking and I started to give away all my stuff. And then the CEO comes in and says, no, 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 not the bus. You're going to booking, not sure why. When I got to booking, I saw those two guys with their arms folded across their chest and they were mad. I knew they were there for me. So I walked over and said, hey, how's it going? Kirby. Where the fuck is Brett Johnson? I responded, he's in golf pod. Smith, he escaped from federal prison. Did you have anything to do with this? Me? Ah, wait, what? Seriously? Kirby again. You know what's going on. Don't play stupid with us. Me. All right, this is the kid. I clearly don't. Why would I help the guy who put me in jail get out of jail? Smith, 
you guys exchanged letters. The kid. How did he get out of jail? With a helicopter? Kirby, he ran from a camp. The kid. So you sent the guy who was on the most wanted list to a camp, and then he escaped, and now you're surprised. Smith, if we find out you had anything to do with this, you'll be coming back down here for another case. So that was the conversation that this kid had with those two agents after my escape. I wrote this kid, like I said, a letter saying, you know, everything that went wrong with the case. He uh, he fights it. He goes to trial with this with this case. And um, the stuff that I wrote that had went wrong with the case that the agents had done improperly was stuff that would probably have exonerated this kid. The jury would probably not have convicted service offices. And I want to go into that story. So what happens is, is I go to work at the Columbia, South Carolina field office. They've got Camtasia. They've got Spectre Pro on my laptop. I'm hooked up to a laptop outside line. My laptop is hooked up to a 50-inch plasma monitor on the wall. In the room with me at all times are three law enforcement officers, two Secret Service officers, one South Carolina law enforcement agent. They've got a desktop computer literally next to my laptop. Their desktop is hooked up to an outside line as well. They've got Camtasia and Spectre Pro on my machine. It records snapshots of everything that's going on. It's got a keylogger that takes every keystroke that I'm typing as well. All of that data, that information goes on a DVD at the end of the night and on a spindle. For the And I, my work is I go in there every single day. I work four to six hours a day surfing the web, finding targets, setting up people, blah, 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 explaining how, how cybercrime operates, all this stuff. The first two weeks, these agents are really, really on point. They're paying attention to everything. But here's the thing. Your ass gets tired of watching that shit after two weeks. So they got bored because they were on a desktop computer hooked up to the outside line. Nobody's watching what they're doing. So instead of watching me, they start to watch porn after the first two weeks. Specifically, they go to this site called Flash Your Rack, where women have their breasts out and men can rank their breasts on a scale of one to 10. And so they spend their evenings doing that instead of watching me. At the same time, I got Brad. He's constantly in my ear about how I'm going to go to prison. I get of the opinion pretty quick, not that I was not breaking the law before because I was, but I get of the opinion, screw this shit. I'll show you who's, who's who and what's what. So I start breaking the law from inside Secret Service offices with them in the same room with me. That goes on for 10 months until they find out about it, revoke my bond, send me back to county jail. The judge lets me out because they revoked the bond improperly. I take off on a cross-country crime spree, make the United States most wanted list, go to Disney World, escape from prison, blah, blah, blah. What also happened while I was working for the United States Secret Service, there was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigation. This kid had been arrested. He had been sent to prison. I say kid, he was an adult. He got sent to prison. All right, he was in prison. The RCMP get him out of prison so that they can work him as an informant. This kid sits, sets up a website called lacosanostra.com. Criminal Marketplace, Criminal Forums. This kid had, the way the RCMP was working the investigation, the kid had a keylogger on the site. Anyone who visited the site the keylogger would download to their machine. That way he could start tracking every single thing that they were doing. 
build start building a case, start tracking these individuals, everything across the board. So what happens is I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. I leave from that day's work. As I'm driving back to my apartment, I get a call from Brad. Brad's like, hey, Brett. I was like, yeah, man. He's like, uh, look, man, I just found out uh, uh, La Cosa Nostra's got a keylogger. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, man, anyone who visits the site, a keylogger is downloaded to their machine. And I'm like, well, we visited the site. And he's like, yeah, man, we got to do something about it. And I was like, I'll take care of it when I come in tomorrow. And then I asked him, I was like, hey, uh, who owns La Cosa Nostra? Because I felt it odd that he knew that there was a keylogger attached. So I was like, who owns La Cosa Nostra? And he's like, none of your goddamn business. And I was like, okay, I'll be in tomorrow. So the next day I go in. Now, usually when I go into those offices, I went directly to that war room where I did my job. That day was different. That day they had me wait in the waiting area. So out pops Bobby. And Bobby's talking to me, you know, simple bullshit. And he's like, uh, yeah, we'll go back in a minute. And I was like, look, Bobby, I said, uh, this La Cosa Nostra thing, I really need to know who owns the site. And he's like, well, hold on. I'll go back and ask Brad. I was like, okay. So Bobby goes back, asks Brad, and Brad, from the back of the offices, I hear him scream, tell him it's none of his goddamn business. And I'm like, okay. So they take me down to the war room, him and Bobby do, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, what, what do you guys want me to do since it's none of my goddamn business? And Brad's like, well, if you came across a site like that, what would you do? And I was like, well, I'd probably tear its ass down. And Brad's like, you know, you probably should just do what you would usually do. And I'm like, okay. So within 48 hours, I have the site shut completely down, removed from the internet. The kid is sent back to prison. That's who Brett Johnson used to be. I used to be able to do shit like that. It's not like I don't have some sort of skill level. So I have the site shut within 48 hours. Site shut down, kids back in jail. Washington calls Columbia, South Carolina. What is your fucking monkey doing? That was the question. What's your monkey doing? We're coming down to talk to him. So all of a sudden, they pile in the war room. They're looking at me. Brad's looking at me. Hey, do you want to stay out of jail? I'm like, yeah. Well, then you probably don't want to say that we told you to do anything. I'm like, I understand. So Washington flies in. I'm there the day that they fly in. Do they talk to me? No, they spend two hours talking to Bobby, talking to Brad, talking to Jim Ramacone, the second in charge in South Carolina. Finally, after two hours of that, they bring me in. As they bring me in, Bobby looks at me because evidently no one had explained to him prior to working with me who the fuck I was. So Bobby looks at me. He's like, we had no idea who you were. And I'm like, what? And he's like, we didn't know you were that big a name in this business. And I'm like, yeah. So I go in there with these two Washington guys, and the first things out of their mouth is, we want to thank you for everything that you're doing. I'm like, yes, sir. The next things out of their mouth was, why aren't you targeting any Russians? And my answer was, what I told them, the answer was, well, I've just not had that opportunity. The real answer was, you don't screw with those guys because they'll friggin' kill you. I just, I had... As Shadow Crew was ending, Script had taken pictures of some some bitch that he had kidnapped and tortured. So I was 
told the Secret Service, I was like, I just not had the opportunity. And they were like, well, look, you're doing a great job. We would appreciate if you start targeting Russians and Ukrainians. And I'm like, okay. And that's on, the only thing that happened at that point. That's one instance. The hacking, what happens is, is one day I walk into the office. They've got me a burner phone. As soon as I sit down at the computer, try to log into uh, my email account, can't log into it. Immediately get a phone call. And there's a there's a guy that's using a voice uh, voice synthesizer on the other end of the line. And he tells me he's got control of all my accounts. That guy turns out he was from Chicago. We tracked him, found out exactly who he was. What he does is, is he uh, finds out I hadn't posted my real name, but I had posted who my fiance was and that history for those who have watched Lex Friedman or me talk about things in my show that guy had gotten all that information. He had stolen money out of uh, the Secret Service's e-gold account. He had um, he had uh, stolen identities that he was using and profiting from everything else. We identified that guy. And that hack, he had a keylogger on our system, had access to everything that was going on. Um, he stayed in our system for about three months until one day, and I'd been telling him every single day, hey, this guy's got a key log on system. We need to format the drives. And the, the, re, the, the response was always, no, it's okay. Keep tracking. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. I was like, okay. Took three months. I walk in one day, about 90 days later, and Brad and Bobby are sitting there. And, they're like, and they looked at me and they're like, uh, you know, we think uh, we think your, your machine's got a key logger on it. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to do? Well, it'd probably be best if you uh, formatted the, uh, the laptop hard drives today. So that's how that ended. That was added on to a lot of the um, the monthly reports they were doing. Some of those were um, redone and backlogged, backdated, things like that. Um, I told the kid all this. This kid, this kid, I wrote this kid, like I said, a letter saying, you know, everything that went wrong with the case. He uh, he fights it. He goes to trial with this with this case, and um, the stuff that I wrote that it went wrong with the case that the agents had done improperly was stuff that would probably have exonerated this kid. The jury would probably not have convicted on that. So this kid files all these FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Access requests. He sends all these in in 2007. Sends them in 2007. He goes to prison. He goes to court, goes to prison, gets convicted, gets out. I guess the kid got out probably around 2012, somewhere through that, through there. He finally gets the FOIA documents, all those things that he requested. He gets those in 2014. And all of those documents detail that everything that I had told him was true. Agents had gotten on the stand and lied. Agents had uh, claimed people that existed did not exist. Uh, they had told all these things in order to maintain the viability of the evidence that was being used against this kid. Now, here's the thing. Make no mistake about it. I was damn guilty. This kid was guilty. There's not a doubt about that. He'll, he'll, he'll tell you today he was guilty. All right. He was. But what happens is, is while I'm working for the Secret Service, there was some nefarious shit that was going on. They were backdating monthly reports, MRs. They were, uh, they, they, we, had, we had been hacked at one point. 
a key logger had been put on our system. The, the person who had hacked into our system, my computer, the person who had done that had, had gotten all this information, had access to these files, everything else. And it was, was bragging about it. All right. So I told this kid every single bit of that and told him about the MRs, told him about the, the way the evidence had been acquired against him, the improper activities that were done there, gave him all the names, everything else. So he had all this information. Some of the documents that he got in detail that and uh, detail, like, for example, Kirby. Kirby was well aware that we were hacked because these two agents, Kirby and Smith, did not allow me to format. I told him out of the gate, we've got a keylogger. We need to do something about that. Well, it took them three months to actually come to the conclusion that we had a keylogger on our system and we needed a format. So we're for a three-month section out of that investigation, this attacker was getting all the data that was going through my system, all the evidence that was coming in. He was getting access to all this stuff that was going on. Um, I told this kid that. Now, the problem with that is that when you're looking to have a case against someone, you have to make sure that the evidence is unblemished. If you have a case where, hey, somebody's been in there fucking around, it's pretty easy to convince a jury that the evidence is tainted at that point. So in order for that to, uh, in order for it to appear that everything was kosher, it looks like one of the agents doesn't look like one of the agents got on the stand and said under oath that secret service computers, the computer that I was using was not compromised, that it was simply one email address that a hack never happened. And it, from the freedom of information documents that this kid has got, it appears that these agents also flew to Chicago where they talked to the attacker. They knew who he was. Cause I remember we identified the son of a bitch. They flew and talked to him and said, hey, because he was an identity th thief as well, and he had evidence against him about stealing all this stuff, he would have got it some time. But they kind of made a deal with him. Hey, you keep your mouth shut. We're not going to charge you with anything. We'll just pretend none of this stuff ever happened. And the reason that that happened was they needed to maintain the legitimacy of the evidence that was being used to convict people that absolutely had committed crimes. Now, I never fought any of that, and I don't intend to because, hey, I got exactly what I deserved. The truth of the matter was probably deserved a hell of a lot more than that. I was lucky to get off with ultimately a seven-and-a-half-year prison sentence. But justice in the United States means that you're supposed to be playing fair across the board. Now, I don't have a problem with what they do with me. I don't have a problem with that at all, at all. I think that I got off light at the end of the day, and I'm thankful. I am truly thankful and grateful. I had the opportunity to apologize to Bobby Kirby um, a few years ago. And uh, with tears in my eyes, I did that, and I, I walked away just uh, grateful for the opportunity to sit down and talk with the man and tell him, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. Because these two agents, Smith and Kirby, they got fired. They got fired for what happened, okay? But while I feel that way toward my case, there were people like this kid. There were people like Daniel Rigmaiden, who he's on Netflix right now. Web of Make-Belief is the show. I'm on that show with him too, episodes five and six. Rigmaiden 
chose to de- defend himself, and he wins. He wins. All right. If Rig Maiden would have known this stuff, he would have probably had a much easier time arguing his case. So they had hidden the problems with the evidence in order to keep those cases viable across the board. I wanted to share that today. I told the kid, hey, I will say one thing about me. I am a son of a bitch. I am. I'm the son of a bitch that when I was a criminal, I looked after my criminal tribe. I'm the son of a bitch now that when something goes wrong, when somebody's doing something improper, when something needs to be called out, I am that son of a bitch that will do I'm that. Close this out. I just wanted I to discuss that. I told this kid I would talk about that. We need to, especially with the it, over the years, I've got some articles that I pulled up about this series of situations with the United States Secret Service. We have, it really looks to me that we've got a law enforcement agency there that really has no real oversight whatsoever. Recently, January 6th, we've seen the Secret Service deleted text messages that had been requested from the investigators regarding January 6th, after they had been requested, after they had been requested. Now, why did they delete them? Well, they deleted them because, hey, those some bitches are doing some nefarious shit that day. They're talking about stuff that would be highly embarrassing to the United States Secret Service or maybe even criminal. So they deleted the messages to save that black eye, to save some firings, and to save some potential charges that were going to go on. That's why those messages were deleted. They didn't mistakenly delete them because they did a server update or whatever the hell they were updating. No, they didn't. Now, that's my opinion. But I don't think I'm too far off on that opinion. All right, so we're back to the Brett Johnson show. We already talked about corrupt law enforcement, systemic problems within some of these agencies. Now we're talking about LinkedIn. So the other day, CZ, the the CEO of Binance, he posts on Twitter that, hey, on LinkedIn, there are 7,000 accounts there that claim they work for Binance. And of those 7,000 accounts, only about 50 of them actually do. To which I, in my infinite wisdom, I retweeted that. (laughs) And I posted it on LinkedIn, retweeted it on Twitter, and basically said, hey, it's far worse than that. You know, the the problem with fake profiles across all platforms is pretty bad right now. So I had Business Insider reach out to me. She was this, this reporter. She was like, hey, I read your comment. Can I talk to you? Well, she didn't know who the hell I was. So I get her on the phone. We're talking. She's like, oh, shit. I definitely want to talk to you. So I'll be having more interviews with this lady in the future. Looks like it's going to be a very good relationship where she talks to the former criminal, now chief criminal officer of Arcos Labs, you know, turn good guy. As I say, you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is why this is happening. This is what's going to happen. Blah, 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 blah. We were talking about the fake profiles on LinkedIn. So why do criminals go to LinkedIn? Let's. Segway for a second, go over to Facebook. Now, Facebook, eh, there's all kinds of people that have their Facebook profiles public where anybody can read about those individuals. When I was a criminal, that was before Facebook time, we had MySpace, we had things like that. But these days, what happens is if I'm looking to steal your identity, 
what I'll do is, is I'll go to the dark web. I'll buy your, you know, credit card details or log into your bank account or fintech service. I'll buy something like that around 40, 60, maybe a hundred bucks. Get that. I'm, I'm going to try to take over the account or order replacement cards, something like that. In order for me to do that, I have to have your complete identity profile. So how do I get that? Well, if I can't buy it ready-made or get it through TLO or DelvePoint, I have to go and build it piece by piece. So I buy your social and date of birth from RoboCheck for, say, $3.70. I get that. Then I go over and I buy your background check from someplace like Ben Verified. Ben Verified has background checks for $28 a month, unlimited. You can you can pull a thousand background checks a month. They don't give a damn as long as you pay them $28 a month. Fine. So I get your background check, not only your background check, but the background check of every single associates of yours in the hopes of getting your mother's maiden name, which I'll get. Now I've got that. Now it's time to get the credit report. Where do I go? Same damn place you go annualcreditreport.com, where they ask security questions. No time limit on those security questions. So I can sit there with a background check with Google, try to get the correct answers. Will I get them? Well, most of the time, yeah. If I don't, am I worried? No, I don't, because my next stop is Credit Karma, where they ask the exact same questions, except the answers are different, except for the correct answer. Now I've got your credit report. I then go over to LinkedIn to find out where you work. Glassdoor to find out how much you make, and finally, Facebook, to find out if you've posted anything of interest. So Facebook is used to gather data on who you are, what you do. It, that's not the only reason that criminals use Facebook. Criminals also use Facebook to find out if you've went on vacation so they can rob your home. They use Facebook to get pictures of your kids that they then do deep fakes with to use as pornographic currency to get membership to other child porn websites. Facebook has a trove of stuff that criminals can use to victimize you and your loved ones. This is about LinkedIn though. LinkedIn is a treasure trove for criminal and nation state activity as well. What, what, so why do I say that? Well, think of it like this. I used to be a financial cyber criminal. I actually, you could kind of call me the father of modern cybercrime. Not a proud term, but hey, it is what it friggin' is. All right. So what I could do is I could build a fake LinkedIn profile, claim that I worked for some security company, some large corporation, whatever. It's not checked. I can claim I work for that group, build my LinkedIn profile, and then start building my network of people on LinkedIn. You know, that's what LinkedIn is. It's a networking site. I want to network with people who I'm interested in. In this case, I've got a criminal. I'm a criminal. I'm building a profile so that I can talk to fraud analysts or security analysts that work for the security companies that I'm interested in compromising, the retail merchants that I'm interested in, what type of security that they're using so I can bypass it. How do their security tools work? So I'll start building this network and I'll gain trust in the LinkedIn environment until I start reaching out and talking about, hey, have you guys seen this type of problem? Have you seen this issue? Build trust, ask questions, let my network answer any type of security questions I've got or how does the security product work? That's how criminals use it. Absolutely. But that's not the only way criminals use it. Criminals also use it for business email compromise. So I'll build a profile and then I'll start trying to research payroll departments, 
CEOs of companies so I can start finding the proper targets to commit some sort of business email compromise. Ransomware, the exact same damn thing at that point. So I'll build the profile up until I get trust established. And then I'll use that as a connection to start trying to deploy ransomware against corporations. If I can get them to click on a PDF, download a file, anything else like that, got your ass at that point in time. So from that criminal perspective, and that's just just a couple of examples. It's It's way, way bigger than that. From that criminal perspective, it is a treasure trove. People share information in environments that they trust. How is trust established online? Through a combination of technology, tools, social engineering. Technology is not just the hardware. It's not just your laptop, your desktop, your cell phone. It's also the websites that we go to. A dating website. We trust that dating website to vet the other members who are signing up to make sure that they're not scammers. LinkedIn, a website. We trust that website to vet the other members who are signing up to be who they claim they are, that they are not criminals, that they are not spies, that they are not nation state attackers trying to gain information, IP, access, data, cash, anything else like that. That's what we trust. But we don't understand that criminals, nation states who have you, use tools to manipulate that technology to gain access to that system. They use stolen identities. They use spoof phone calls. They use proxy addresses. They use anything they need to, maybe shelf corporations or more. They use anything they need to, to gain access to the site, the site and the tools, that hardware, that technology and the tools lay a base level of trust. And then it's up to the criminal or the nation state to start layering that trust, to build that network that then trusts them so that they can go out and get information, access data or cash. That's the way cybercrime operates on the, on the financial cybercrime level that I used to be on the nation state level, because you've got nation state attackers that use LinkedIn every single day. Facebook says Iranian hackers used site to spy on U.S. troops. That is from an Israel news site. Here's from Cybersecurity Insiders. North Korea attacks Israel with a fake LinkedIn profile. Here's another one. This is from Gawker.com. Israel creates fake LinkedIn profile for Iranian president. You've got tons about of tons of information and stories about this. That's what you can do. What can you do if you're a nation state? Oh, my. We've seen it time and time again. You can start talking to troops. You can start trying to maybe talk to former uh, former troops, former intelligence officers. You can start talking to major corporations. You can determine all, you get all kinds of data, all kinds of access, information. Ultimately, you can maybe use some of the data and information that you're getting to blackmail people if you need to. So you can do all kinds of things from all types of different attacks. This is the problem with social media. It's not just LinkedIn where you have fake profiles that do this shit. The FBI issued a warning about LinkedIn being connected, these fake profiles being connected with cryptocurrency scams. All day, every day, the sky is the limit when you have a site like this that is about corporations, employees, working together. If you can establish trust within the, that environment, you get a treasure trove of the things that criminals and nation states need to profit or to victimize. That's why the story is there. All right. 
Um, just thought I would mention that. So how do you fix that? Well, first of all, I want you guys to understand it's not as if Microsoft owns LinkedIn. It's not as if Microsoft doesn't try to vet. They do. But you got this thing called friction. Friction is what may disrupt the customer experience that would provide more secure features or an environment for the overall population. You don't want to really disrupt the experience too much, the customer experience too much because that customer will choose not to use that platform, in this case, LinkedIn. So you need to keep it at a minimum, but try to have security where it's proper, where you're able to vet this stuff. So they do get rid of a lot of fake profiles. Absolutely. That doesn't mean they get rid of every single one of them. A skilled attacker can come in and manually set up a fake profile and build it up and be very, very successful with whatever type of fraud or scheme that that attacker is trying to implement at that point in time. Um, the friction is what keeps things from being as as secure as I can. Yeah, you can actually shut down all the fraud, all the fake accounts that you want to. And the way you do that is you just close up the site. That's the maximum level of friction. No one can access it at that point. You can't do that. You're trying to make money. So the friction has to be at a minimum and you try to do security as best you can. And that's a lot of the problems across a lot of different sites and platforms overall is that that idea of friction. You don't want to cost too much. Um, so the idea is to cause friction on the criminal side of things, but not on the legitimate user side of things. More experienced human attackers are very good at mimicking human the, the legitimate human behavior and gaining access. And then they just lay in wait. They build those profiles over time. The, one of the reasons that cybercrime is so successful is that you get someone who's patient who waits things out, they appear more and more legitimate as time passes. And the machines will not recognize that as a as, as an illegitimate user, okay? So or a suspicious user. So that's the way this kind of stuff actually happens at the end of the day. I've got all these links to uh, these stories that I've referenced and everything through the show. Um, the way that you defeat this, all right? You cannot rely as much as the site, whether it be a dating site, it be Facebook, it be LinkedIn, it be Twitter, as much as the site works to defeat fake profiles. And they do a, a pretty good job. They are not able to defeat all. And this comes into this idea of, of personal responsibility for your security that I often talk about. You should not depend solely on a website or security tool or what have you to make sure that you are 100% secure. First of all, you're never going to be 100% secure. Second of all, those sites, it's not, they're, they're doing this for you, but it's not your account. All right. It's not, it's not them. You need to take that personal responsibility for your own security. You need to be aware of what's happening in your environment. You need to trust but verify, or as Chris Roberts, a legend in this industry, said the other day, verify, but trust. You know, you see a LinkedIn profile. The guy says he works at X Corporation or has this background. How do you know? Simply because it's on LinkedIn and LinkedIn is allowing it to be on there? That doesn't tell you a damn thing. I Today, I can start up a profile and say I've worked 30 years for NASA and LinkedIn will not flag that. They will not. Because they don't, they don't try to 
uh, uh, verify work history. All right. So they don't flag that at all. And they don't report to NASA or whatever company I'm claiming to work for. They don't report that, hey, this guy's saying he's working for you. And if they did, that company probably wouldn't verify it or say they didn't either. Okay, so it's up to you, the user, to not believe every single thing that you say, that you see online. There are liars there. There are predators there. There are criminals there. It's up to you to verify that. Just because somebody says something, don't make it so. I can say something all day long that don't make it real. So you got to verify this shit. All right. That's the lesson of the day. Trust, but verify. Or as Chris Roberts says, verify, but trust, but verify. All right. And actually boils down to how you view the world. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I don't, I never viewed Chris Roberts as a pessimist, but I view that statement as more pessimistic before we trust. We have to verify things. I'm the guy that says, I'm going to trust you but I'm going to verify everything before I give you information, access, data, or cash. That's what I say. Okay. So verify, but trust, trust, verify, whatever the hell, verify things. The Supreme court shut down Roe v. Wade, which means that all of a sudden the question of abortion goes over to the States. Now, the Democrats, in their infinite wisdom, they did, they've never really worried about the states. They've worried about the two coastlines, but they've never really worried about the states. They've been concentrated on national politics and, by and large, the interior states. They've been like, ah, we don't give a shit about. Meanwhile, the Republicans have been like, that's ah, all right. We'll worry about state politics. And they've been building up their state infrastructure in anticipation of one of these things, like abortion popping in. And it did. And as a result of that, and the Democrats never really worrying about that shit at the state level, as a result of that, we're now seeing somewhere between 23 to 26 states that are going to make abortion illegal. When that happened, when news came out that Roe v. Wade was going to be knocked out, a lot of people were up in arms. And there were some questions that were coming around. Are these big tech companies going to give data about abortions over to states that may charge their citizens with having an illegal abortion. Maybe a citizen travels from one state to another because that citizen's that, that lady's state abortion is illegal in her state, but it's not in a neighboring state. Are, are you going to give that data over if the state wants to charge that individual with murder? And big tech said, by and large, big tech came out and said, you know what? We ain't going to do it. We ain't got to do it. You can trust us. Now, here's the thing. These big tech companies, they answer to U.S. courts. So while they may say publicly, we ain't going to give away no information. Shit, no, we ain't going to do that. No, we're going to delete the data. That location data, anybody that travels, Google said it, anybody that travels to an abortion clinic, we're going to delete that information. Well, you know what? No, you ain't. No, you ain't. There's laws on that shit. You're not. What you're doing is, is you're saying that publicly to get a response from the public who wants some, to, to think that something's being done to shield 
the people who are getting these abortions. The reason I say that is that there's a news article that popped out not long ago about Facebook. They had been subpoenaed. 17-year-old was going to get an illegal abortion. She was going to take the morning after pills after the time where you were supposed to take them too far in her pregnancy to in order to abort herself. So she was having conversations on Facebook about doing that. State finds out about it. They send a subpoena to, to Facebook. Hey, we need those text messages. Now, here's the thing. Big tech, by and large, it said, we ain't giving no shit like that up. Did Facebook give the text messages over? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Now, here's the thing. There's going to be a whole shitload of people out there that are anti-abortion that are going to say, you know, I'm down. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. There's going to be a whole shitload of people out there who are pro-choice for abortion that are going to say that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong thing. Now, my view of abortion, I'm kind of like the, um, there's a comedian. I forgot what his name was. But what he says is he says, you know, hey. It's a woman's body. Let her do what she wants to do. I'm of that opinion. But I'm also of the opinion that, hey, you're killing the baby. You ain't going to tell me that that's not a life in there. All right. You ain't going to tell me that shit. You ain't going to tell me if you, that you're going to follow by the Bible and say, you know, life begins at the first breath, because obviously that's that that's a baby in there. You leave it in there long enough. It's going to come out crying and pooping all over everything. So I do believe that it's a woman's choice, but I also believe that, hey, yeah, you're killing a baby too, all right? So I take the, and I think that if more people would just kind of come to that conclusion, we might have a little bit different conversation. The problem is, is that we as a people, we like to believe what we want to believe and then shut out any type of logical arguments that circulator might, you know, cause us to change some opinions and whatnot. At the same point, you know, all these people who are, anti-abortion seems to me that a lot of these people are not for any type of civil of services of you know welfare type services that might help raise this unwanted child in a healthy environment making sure they're properly food clothed loved and educated seems to me they want to cut out all those services while making sure that abortion is illegal too you know what if you will be to outlaw abortion, then by God, you ought to have the services in place to make sure the child is properly raised, loved, educated, nourished, everything else across the board. And you guys ain't. You ain't. All right? So it, there's there's two sides to that friggin' coin. The reason I mention this stuff, now, big tech certainly gives over that data, but this privacy thing, and, and here's the thing, it starts, it goes back to Ed Snowden, right? It actually goes back to Bradley Manning before that. This idea that the government, that our privacy is important, that we need to be worried about our privacy. And I do not like Edward Snowden. I, I'll take Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning now. I'll take them any day above Ed Snowden. And the reason why is Ed Snowden stole all that damn data. And instead of facing the music like Bradley Manning did, he ran his ass to Russia, where he becomes a pawn of the Russian government. That's why I don't like Ed Snowden. Ed Snowden, if he really believed, if he really believed in what he was saying, he would have sat his happy ass there and faced the music because he believed in what he was doing. I don't believe for a second he believed in what he was doing. All right? I don't. I don't believe that. That's why I don't like him. But the point that he makes about privacy, he said it. People didn't give a damn about it. 
You know, he, he kept saying the government's looking at this stuff. Privacy matters. You need to be aware of everything that's being shared and captured about you. You need to be you need to do something about it. You need to care. And nobody gave a damn about what Ed Snowden said. They didn't appreciate their privacy. Main, meanwhile, across the pond, over in their, there in the UK, in the EU, they care about their privacy. In the United States, most Americans don't give a damn. But is that changing these days? So now, because of the abortion question, maybe, maybe we got some people that are worried about their privacy now. As by God, you should be. That's not the only problem. I've got I've been reading articles about government agencies pulling cell phone location data. So they'll go to cell phone providers or big tech and they'll buy cell phone location data from these companies in order to start tracking individuals, not individuals who are under investigation, just mass amounts of individuals. Who's running around the borders? Who's in this area of the city? Who's doing this? And they people who are not in being investigated at all. They're just starting to track people and they've been doing that. And guess what? It's legal. It's legal. It's legal for these agencies to buy that data and to track you. Now, here's the thing. That's cell phone location data. Do you think is anyone out there naive enough to believe that it's just cell phone location data that they're buying or getting from these corporations? Are you really that naive? Because it's a hell of a lot more than that. It's the sites you're going to. It's what you're buying. It's your biometrics. It's everything that those companies capture that they're sharing as well. I have no doubt about that. If you think it's just cell phone location data, you are naive. There's a whole shitload of data and information that would be very beneficial to a government, to an agency. And that's the stuff that we're talking about right now. It's being talked about cell phone location data because that that's really you can illustrate that pretty easily. All right. Someone is in a certain part of a city or down around the border of Texas or someplace like that in some area. And the government wants to know, hey, where else is this person going? We don't know anything about them. They're not under any investigation at all. But it's that overreach of government. This is the stuff that Edward Snowden, who, again, I don't like. This is the stuff that Edward Snowden was talking about over and over again. He's banged that drum, but no one has really listened to the guy. That's all I wanted to share was that. You know, I've got an article here's from the ACLU. The U.S. government is secretly using cell phone location data to track us. ACLU suing them. I'm not a big fan of the ACLU, but by God, they do some good things every now and then. New government said, uh, this is from uh, TechCrunch. New documents reveal huge scale of U.S. government's cell phone location tracking. So there's article upon article about how this stuff is going on. And it's for private, it's, they're doing that against private citizens private citizens who have never really been concerned about their privacy. Now, you may think that's not an issue if you're not. And I've heard this this line of reasoning before. Hey, if I'm not doing anything wrong, I ain't got nothing to worry about. You're right. You're right. Until they start to look at you. Now, up until Roe v. Wade was outlawed, abortion was legal. All right. But now 
you've got governments that are able to pull cell phone location data that can see if a citizen from one state travels to a neighboring state were to have something done that might be legal in their home state. That's just one instance of that. You're seeing this tracking data that's being used against private citizens that the majority of them are not breaking the law. They're not breaking the law. We're just trying to find out what they're doing. We want to, we want to have that Orwellian looking glass on them at all times. It's a very powerful tool that we're talking about. And people, by and large, have never appreciated their privacy in the United States. But, you know, the thing is, is that you better by God start. You better by God start. It starts at the abortion level. It starts with governments having all this cell phone data where they're going up and they're able, they're able to see people who are going to shooting ranges or who visit a, a convention center that has a gun show. That's how it might affect you. You got... Um, where governments are able to track individuals. Maybe they identify individuals and they see that this guy's going to, you know, hotels at the same time, this other woman's going to a hotel and they find out that he's cheating on his wife, maybe some political figure or something like that. Could that happen? Yeah, that could absolutely happen. You see all these, this, this, these, the way that information can be used against private citizens to harm them. Does it have a benefit? Yeah, it has a benefit. But does the benefit outweigh the negative of giving up that type of data? And here's the thing. It's all legal right now. It's all legal. There's never been proper privacy regulation in the United States. There's nothing to stop governments from our government or agencies from doing that whatsoever. We've got to get to the point where we understand that, where we, where we respect our security and our privacy. And we give a damn about that. And I don't think it's going to happen until it bites us as individuals in our individual asses. You know, people who are like this girl, this 17-year-old girl, that's going to be charged because she talked about having that abortion on Facebook. She's going to be charged. It's just a matter of time until we see a state that uses cell phone location data to use that as evidence against someone who has traveled to an abortion clinic to have an abortion. It's a matter of time. Any state can say they're not going to do that. By God, they're going to do that. You could bet your ass on that. It's a matter of time until, you know, we see somebody that's, uh, they get a knock at the door from the ATF because they've went and visited a firing range or something like that. It's a matter of time till that happens. Or you've bought something online. Maybe you've bought a pressure cooker online. Maybe, maybe one Christmas you buy three pressure cookers online. Could that Prompt a knock at the door? Yeah, you're damn right it could. You're damn right it could. We've got to start caring about our privacy. Are you worried about your privacy yet? Are you? I don't think people are. But it's going to bite us in the ass. It's going to bite us in the ass. I'm Brett Johnson. This is the Brett Johnson Show. What do we say? We say stay safe. Stay secure. And stay vigilant. And understand what that means. Stay safe. Understand your place in the online and in the physical world. Understand the entities and the attackers that are out there who may make things less safe for you. Have that cognitive awareness out there. Have that situational awareness of your environment that these things do matter, that these things are out there, these predators are out there, that it's not just criminals or nation states that are sometimes looking at you.
So stay safe, stay secure, take the proper precautions online and in your physical world to be secure in your environments. Stay vigilant, always be aware of things. Stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. At the end of the day, this is the Brett Johnson Show. What do we say? We say at the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you for watching. Until next time, take care.